Well, good morning again. You guys can find your seats. Before we dive into our passage this morning, I'm sure that some of you are wondering who this young guy is that's standing up here where John normally stands. Uh, well, John wanted um, me to tell you guys that I'm your new pastor, and he and Andrea are gone. They're not coming back, apparently. I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah, I'm the new guy now. So, no, um, John and Andrea are on vacation, and um, and John asked me to fill in. So, who am I? My name is Andrew Hegeman, and I'm a recent Cairn University grad, um, and I'm looking to go into the ministry. And so, John knows that, and that's why he got a hold of me. I'm very happy to be with you all this morning, because um, during my four years at college, this was my church home, away from home, and um, and so I hope that I'm a familiar face to many of you, but if you are looking and you're finding, I don't recognize this guy, uh, don't feel bad, that's not your fault. College was a really stressful time, and uh, I normally hightailed it out of here to get back to campus and get to work. So this morning, you all have the unique experience, whether that's going to be a positive thing or a negative thing is up to you of hearing my first full sermon preached in front of a congregation. And what I'm hoping is that some of what you hear from me and um, some of the way that I talk, you'll listen to it and you'll find that you think it's somewhat familiar or it uh, the method seems somewhat familiar to you. Part of the reason for that is that during the four years listening to John preach every single week, I kind of found that his own unique preaching voice was kind of influencing my own. So what I'm hoping is that some of the the way that I talk, some of the things that I say today will connect with the overall thread of John's preaching. My message this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. As you turn there, now is a good time to mention that the past, the message that I'm bringing to you doesn't come exclusively from my own study of this passage. About two weeks ago, I met with John, and I was talking to him about the sermon that I was going to be preaching, and what he suggested to me was pick a passage that you feel very comfortable with. And immediately this passage of Scripture came to mind for me because a few weeks ago at my home church, one of our frequent guest speakers um, by the name of Dave Royce preached on this exact passage. Dave works with disciple makers in college campuses doing college ministry, and he is an incredibly gifted man in his study of the word. He's incredibly personable and um, just a really, really gifted speaker. So what I did was I asked his permission if I could draw from some of the notes that I took on his sermon and, and use some of his points and some of his language in my own message. And I'm very, very blessed to have his wisdom infusing my sermon today. So as we look at this passage, I think you'll find that it isn't quite as eye-catching or exciting as some of the passages in the New Testament. But what I think this passage does quite incredibly is it makes us aware of an issue that we wouldn't typically think about. It's an issue that arises very, very slowly. So this morning as we read from Acts, what I want to look at is the idea of what is it that distracts you from prayer and proclamation. With that in mind, Acts 6, 
1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint among the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procris, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning to worship you and remember the great things that you've done for us. Father, prepare our hearts now as we study your word and discover how you protected the church in Jerusalem. Work in me this morning. Speak into me wisdom and truth that comes from you and surpasses anything that I could hope to produce on my own. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for your presence here this morning. Amen. So one of the things that I discovered during my time at Cairn was we're blessed in the Langhorn area with really, really good food. Around here, it's not hard to leave home with about $10 in your wallet and to come back with an awesome cheesesteak, or a hamburger, and just chow down. Perhaps the biggest danger to me personally was, uh, during my time at school was Chick-fil-A. Uh, especially when Karen had the unlimited discount for all of the students. During my freshman year, uh, I got in this habit of eating four meals a day, with the fourth meal being a run to Chick-fil-A at about 9 o'clock at night. And so I'd leave the Nishamani... Chick-fil-A with my 20 ounces of soda, my arms just overflowing with Chick-fil-A sauce, and a nice plump bag of warm fried goodness. And that just became my ritual. And occasionally it would actually really help me with my studying because I would be studying late at night and I'd think to myself, just just keep focusing, Andrew. If you, if you get yourself to 9 o'clock, then it's Chick-fil-A time. And then that will be your reward for all of the hard work that you've done. But what I found was that over time, indulging in all of those really good things started to have a quite negative effect. It seemed like all of a sudden my clothes didn't fit the exact same way that they had fit before. And when I went home on breaks, I started seeing numbers on the scale that I found unfamiliar and quite troubling. And eventually what I realized was I couldn't let all of these fast food options distract me from eating food 
that was actually going to be good for me and was actually going to keep me strong and healthy. And what we see here in this passage in Acts is exactly this same type of distraction which is threatening the early church. It's a distraction not with things that are bad necessarily, but with things that are good in a certain context. So what is this problem really that the church is dealing with? And why, why is it happening now? Well, as we look here at verse 1, what we'll find is that it's a people problem that's caused by progress. Verse 1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint among the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's happening here in Jerusalem is that the church is growing rapidly due to the ministry of the disciples, and there are just more and more people that are coming to the church. And I think that many of us know what it's like to take a group like that, like a church, and just steadily increase the number of people. If you've ever led a group at your workplace or at school, I'm sure that you know what that is like. And what you find is that as there, are more, as there are more people in the room, then there are more opinions. And then as there are more opinions, then so also more chance for conflict and division. And that's exactly what it is that the church is dealing with at this time. So the ESV describes the complaint just as simply a complaint. But the King James set describes it saying, a murmuring arose. So you can kind of get this idea in your head of grumbling and frustration about the poor living conditions that these widows were experiencing. And here what we find is it's kind of like what the Israelites were doing when they were grumbling against the Lord because of their time in the wilderness. And just like the Israelites, what the, is, what the widows are dealing with here is a lack of food um, among the Hellenistic widows. Now, I won't spend a lot of time explaining the challenges that the church was facing between the Hellenistic Christians and the Hebrew believers, but the short version is that these were two groups of people that did not have a track record of playing nice with one another. The Hellenists were converted Gentiles, and they were a people group that had previously looked down on the Jewish believers for their belief in only one God, which at the time was completely outlandish. And the Hebrews were converted Jews who disliked the Gentiles for their heathen ways. And actually, they often called the Gentiles dogs, which, again at the time, was not a term of endearment. So now these two groups are smashed together in the church, trying to do life together, and conflicts such as this are arising. So the result was... With all of this, all of these new people flooding into the church, that the ministries of the local church in Jerusalem needed a massive boost in manpower. And as the mutterings of the congregation make their way up to the disciples, they realized that something needed to be done, but they had a response that we wouldn't normally anticipate. So again, the problem is one of people, and it's being caused by the growth of the church. And the solution that they propose is what I will call a discerning solution. It draws the line 
between important matters and essential matters. So as I hinted, this passage doesn't flow as we might expect it to when you first read it. It seems that most naturally the disciples would say, okay, well, this is an important matter. We'll do what we can. We'll find time in our schedules and we'll take care of this. But instead, the answer that they come back with is, no, we can't help with this. It wouldn't be right. So as we look at verse 2, it tells us, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So let's just pause there for a moment and focus on that statement. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. What this text indicates is that these men, in their God-given wisdom, have identified both the immediate threat to the church as well as a second, hidden, long-term threat that is actually much more serious and much more deadly. The first threat, of course, is the dangers of disunity and bitterness which would arise due to the injustice that's occurring. And it really is injustice that these widows are enduring due to the fact that they're being neglected like this. But the long-term threat is that of distraction from prayer and proclamation of the Word of God. The disciples knew that the widows absolutely required help from the church, but they also knew that the widows' needs, although very important, would distract them from the truly essential things of ministry. So here's an illustration of how something like that plays out. Not long ago, my girlfriend Sarah and I went to on a date to Red Lobster. And like most rational people, were obsessed with the cheddar biscuits. And as I was looking forward to eating the salad, as I was looking forward to going to Red Lobster, I was like, you know what, I'm going to get a salad. Because then I can look forward to a salad because eating something green and leafy absolutely justifies all of the cheddar biscuits that you eat after that. It's completely... It can't, they cancel each other out utterly. But unfortunately, what I found was Red Lobster doesn't seem to understand the proper construction of a salad. Because what Sarah and I ended up getting was this mountain of cheese that was rising out of this pristine golden lake of dressing that had utterly drowned a few pieces of lettuce that were chucked in there. So, all right, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But the, the truth of the matter is that the dressing and the cheese was so overpowering that neither of us could stomach more than a few bites of it. It wasn't really salad anymore because all of those other things had been dumped into it. Unfortunately, lots of food items today are out there masquerading as salads these days. We, there are things like potato salad and fruit salad, which I think in reality, have nothing to do with actual salad. But I guess they are named that way because people like to associate salads with health. And then, if you eat something that's called salad, then obviously you're being healthy. But in my mind, maybe I'm weird, but in my mind a salad is some fruit and some nuts and some lettuce and only those things. But normally lettuce is the main staple. 
Now, hopefully I haven't offended any of the potato salad and fruit salad enthusiasts, but, you know, I'd be more than willing to discuss my food criticism after the service. But the point here, of course, is that somewhere along the way in the Red Lobster kitchens, that Caesar salad was so overrun with cheese and dressing that it completely ceased to be salad, and it started to be something more aligned with soup, let's say. So many other elements were added into it that it could no longer even be called salad. And that's the same type of dilution that the disciples were trying to avoid here. On a salad, the dressing and the cheese are very, very good things. Otherwise, you're just eating lettuce, which tastes like crunchy water, in my opinion. They're very, very good things. And the same is true of the needs of the people in Acts. Caring for the widows was a very, very good thing. But if caring for people became the one and only goal of the church, then the church would not be any different than any of the other systems of support that exist for people in need. At my church, our staff and leadership have been reading a book called Compelling Community by Mark Dever. And one of the things that he points out really early on is that if you're attending a church function and you can imagine hosting that exact same event but completely removing any of the elements of faith or of the gospel, then maybe faith isn't as integral to your church as you think. And what I believe is that Dever is blessed with the same insight that the disciples possessed here. They could see how easily the church could start focusing on other matters other than prayer and proclamation. And we see so much of that today in the world around us. Because how many Christian organizations today are Christian in name only? Do you know that three of the Ivy League schools, Ivy League colleges, actually started out as seminaries? And what happens is, the call of academics and other very, very important things end up distracting away from the roots of faith. And isn't that exactly what the enemy wants? To distract us away from the truly essential things of faith. If we're already saved, then wouldn't Satan want nothing more than to make us completely ineffective in our Christian lives? And isn't that exactly what we so often do? Now, here I'll use a line that is directly from Dave's sermon on this passage because it was just too perfect and it tied things up too succinctly not to reference it. Dave said, People get invested in lots of good things, but they lose the best thing. And that best thing is the continued preaching of the word and the discipline of prayer. So what we see in these verses is the disciples arriving at a solution to separate out the important and the essential matters of the church. And the solution itself involves the establishment of church structure. What the next few verses reveal to us is that church structure ensures that both important 
and essential matters are maintained. Verses 3 through 6 read, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now there's some disagreement about this passage and whether or not this is the instance in church history when the role of deacons was first created. The passage itself doesn't definitively indicate one way or the other because the word deacons, which just means servant, is never actually used to describe these men. However, regardless of what their official title was, it's clear that they certainly filled the role of deacons due to the responsibilities that they took on. They are men serving in the same capacity as Core Creek's ministry leaders. They're managing the important matters. So with that in mind, this passage demonstrates just how absolutely important deacons are to maintaining a healthy church. And it's not that these guys weren't wise enough or smart enough to serve as elders. No, they were absolutely, incredibly gifted. In fact, the power of their faith is so evident that they're described as full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And their God-ordained role in serving their church family was to help manage the important elements so that the essential work could continue. Their service to the widows allowed the elders to continue focusing on prayer and proclamation of the word. And this section also makes abundantly clear that this amount of structure and balance results in unity. The passage tells us in verse 5 how pleased everyone was with this solution and they get immediately to the selection of the men that they want to carry it out. And the scholars believe that based on the names of the men that were chosen, that these were Hellenistic believers, and then they would be the best ones then to, they would be best equipped to care for the Hellenistic widows, because there's no language barrier, no cultural barrier. These men loved their community, and they loved the Lord, And they were commissioned for their work directly by the apostles. So we get to see the unfolding of a healthy church, both through deacons that are deeply faithful and care strongly for the needs of the people, but also through leadership that consistently devotes themselves to prayer and proclamation. This structure is so crucial because without it, the congregation would have ended up being malnourished. They would have become people who were perfectly managing the distribution of physical food, but who were starving spiritually. And eventually what I think is that they would have resembled me during one of my Chick-fil-A feeding frenzies, completely stuffed up and full with good things, but missing the best thing, the most nourishing thing. But I would like to rejoice with you this morning that we have reminders like this in Scripture because it's so very easy for us to get frustrated with our church leadership. 
But what Acts 6 tells us is that we should rejoice that God gave us this structure. Because the final thing that this passage reveals to us is that those who are devoted to prayer and proclamation will spread the gospel with unstoppable progress. The final verse of our passage says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there is just exponential growth here in Jerusalem, which, is, you'll remember, is the same city in which Jesus' ministry was often so fruitless and frustrating. But now, the church is simply teeming with new Christians. And, the fa- and faith in Christ is spreading like wildfire through Jerusalem as it's completely transforming people's hearts. And a church, the church is seeing so much growth that even a great many number of the priests are coming to faith. This wasn't a church that was free of challenges, as this passage has already shown us. These people were dealing with sin and conflict, with suffering and persecution. They had Roman rulers that despised them. And they had political divisions that they were grappling with. But we can rejoice with this church that their success wasn't built on their abilities or their piety. The growth of this church comes only because the word of God was present there. Because we have the promise from Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, which tells us, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is a promise for us that constantly among broken situations and among broken people, the gospel will return bountiful. As I talked with John in preparing this message, I wanted to learn more about your church and hear more of its story, more about its people. And somehow, during my time at Cairn, I completely missed the incredible origin story that this church has. So I learned that years ago, the original church here was struggling. People had left or moved, and the ministry was simply being frustrated. And as the congregation dwindled down to a few families, it was it seemed that the best course of action was for the church to close down. And I'll admit that I haven't yet experienced a church closing in my life, but I can get a good sense of the frustration and the grief and the loss that the congregation was dealing with. But praise the Lord that even in circumstances like that, the gospel has unstoppable progress. Because then John and Andrea were asked to come here and replant this church. Now John was really humble in telling me this story, but from what I know of him and Andrea, I have no doubt that they got here and they went to work. And as Christians in the community responded, the Lord worked 
to renew this area and this church. And now, 11 years later, you're a bursting congregation that regularly seats 100 people on Sunday mornings. And it's a church that's grown so much that sleepy college students like me have to make sure that we set our alarms properly because if we don't, we might not get a good parking spot. And I'll say, as someone that was here for four years while at Cairn, this church has grown into a community that any college student would be proud to call their church away from home. This very church, these four walls, the people that are sitting next to you in the chairs, are a testament, a testimony, to the unshakable, unstoppable progress of the gospel of Christ. So where do we go with this? How do we take this passage and use it on our Monday mornings and throughout our week? Let me suggest four things. First, don't be surprised if problems accompany growth. As any ministry grows, the old problems that it deals with fade away, and new ones crop up to replace them. The new problems might be relational, logistical, or spiritual, but whatever their origin, they will appear, and we can't be surprised by them. Unfortunately, they will often come at the worst times, exactly when you need to be able to focus and when you need the most clarity. It's been my experience that whenever I'm preparing to go on a missions trip or to be engaged in any type of ministry, suddenly everything in my life seems to go completely haywire. My family starts fighting, my car starts making a weird noise, I get a cold or some other illness. And when I mention things like that to my mom, normally what she replies is, well, then I guess that's an indication that something very important is about to happen. Her point being that spiritual attack isn't wasted on churches or on people that are lethargic or lukewarm. The attacks come to those that are seeing growth and experiencing progress. So as this church continues to grow and the new problems frustrate you, do not lose hope. Those challenges do not mean that your Savior has abandoned you. Instead, trials are when the calling of prayer and proclamation become the most powerful. Those will be the times that you need prayer and proclamation the most, and the non-Christians around you will be able to see it and hear it the most clearly. And the second application is that wise leadership must advance the mission while also managing people. One of the main challenges growing churches face is that of people. As we previously noted, more people typically indicates more problems. When it comes to getting things done, it's easy to get frustrated by those around you because what happens is you start saying to yourself, well, if only so-and-so could get their act together, then I could get this done. But of course, what you find then is that the reality is there's no shortcuts when it comes to dealing with people. And in ministry, dealing with people pretty much comes with the territory. But this passage shows us what it looks like to be deeply invested in the welfare of people without losing the crucial mission 
of prayer and proclamation. And from what I know of this church's heart, we can rejoice that your leadership maintains that type of wise perspective. So then, problems will come. Church leaders must be wise in leading the church. And for now, a third application, let me ask you this question. What are we devoted to? Are we devoted to prayer and proclamation like these disciples were? Or are we filling ourselves up with other things? Or let me put it this way. Can you go a day without the word? Can you go a day without prayer? Do we actually believe how important those things are for our everyday lives? Or have we become blind to the dangers of losing them? Look at the widows in this passage. They certainly couldn't go a single day without physical food, and I imagine that none of you can. I know I certainly can't, at least not while maintaining an even temperament. So what things in our lives are keeping us from devotion to prayer and proclamation? That's not terribly hard to figure out. Just ask yourself, what commands your attention? What is it that when it's on your mind, there's nothing else that can distract you from it? Are there things on your calendar that you guard fiercely, that you refuse to postpone or move because they're simply too precious to you? What are the things that you wake up in the morning excited about? Those are the things that threaten to distract us from prayer and proclamation. And as this passage warns us, they aren't even necessarily bad things. I don't know. Maybe they are, but they might not be. They might actually be really, really good things. But that are, they are the things that are keeping us from the best thing. But what is the best thing ultimately? What this proclaimed word in Acts is calling for us to do is find Christ. Because at the end of the day, He's the only essential thing. He is the thing that will serve as good food for our souls. Jesus himself says that he is the water that can quench our thirst and the food that will satisfy us forever. He truly is the very best thing that we could ever want. And the list of reasons why just goes on and on and on. But let's look at just one thing from this passage, and that's this. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of prayer and proclamation. Jesus cared for people constantly, and he clearly took incredible joy in it. But yet he often said to the people that he healed, go and don't tell anyone what I've done, so that he wouldn't become known as only a physical healer. He found the balance between taking care of the needs of people and focusing on his mission. Jesus himself rarely worried about his own physical needs. The widows in Acts 6 needed food, certainly, but generally they were being taken care of by the church. But yet during his ministry, Jesus lived a life of complete deprivation. He fasted for 40 days in the desert, 
And he said things like this, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he made those sacrifices, and he never grumbled, because he was devoted to prayer and proclamation. So much so that during the temptation in the wilderness, when he's just starving for food, he quoted to Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His food and his drink was to preach the words of his Father. Jesus Christ is the one who would escape to the mountains so that he could pray to his Father, or go out onto a boat to preach so that he could preach and reach all of the multitudes of people that had flocked to hear him. The widows in our passage endured the injustice of neglect. But the final chapter in Jesus' perfect, sinless life was a shocking display of injustice. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was sold by Judas for a bag of silver. He endured an illegal trial in the middle of the night. And finally, the world's one and only truly innocent man was crucified in between two thieves. And all of this injustice was endured so that God could condemn the sin and the evil and the injustice in this world without condemning you and me. How absolutely majestic is it that we have a Savior that lived that type of life? And if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, man, I know in my heart I will never be able to live that type of life with that type of devotion. Well, you can leave this morning confident because through his atoning work on the cross, Christ's perfect record of prayer and proclamation is credited to us. All of the distraction, good or bad, that keeps us from prayer and proclamation has been completely washed away because of the perfect life of our Savior. And now, even more, we live with the Holy Spirit who will empower us to seek after Christ's example. And that, brothers and sisters, is truly the best thing. It's crows in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us this passage that demonstrates the care that you take for your church. Help us as we experience challenges in the church to trust in your plan. Guide our church leaders in continuously choosing prayer and proclamation while also managing our people. And Lord, we thank you for the perfect life of your Son who devoted himself to prayer and proclamation in order to completely rescue us from all the distraction that plagues us. Help us to seek after Christ's example throughout our week as we reflect on our passage. Amen.